What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Erie News. And today is July 5th, 2022, Tuesday. July 5th, 2022, and even though it's a little bit belated, happy 4th of July. Of course, I was barbecuing and having a good time. That's why I couldn't read any news. But anyway, let's get off to the races, shall we? The strange races, anyway. And the uh, the first article that we're going to look at, it's out of Erie News, and it's titled, 17th Century Beeswax Wreck Recovered Off the Coast of Oregon. A discovery of ancient beeswax found on the Oregonian coast at Nihalem was reported in the newspapers throughout the years. It was assumed it came from a wrecked vessel that foundered on its way to a Catholic monastery in California. The wax was etched with Latin words. During the 1800s, there were different theories where chunks of beeswax washing on shore were coming from. First, it was assumed it might have come from the ship Peacock, wrecked on the Nihalem Bay sandpit. It carried beeswax among its cargo, which was strewn along the beach. However, William Savage, a pioneer in the area during the 1840s, said the Wirg of War Peacock was wrecked at the mouth of the Columbia River in 1842. Then there was controversy if it was beeswax or mineral wax. However, the wing of a bee was found embedded in the wax, providing evidence of what it truly was. By 1922, it was reported that chunks of beeswax were sent by Emil G. Gadell of Manzanita to the Oregon Agricultural College. In 1961, the Shell Oil Company issued a report stating the beeswax found in the sand dune of Nihalim Peninsula were about 430 years old. They tested a specimen at their laboratory in Texas after it was sent to them by the Tillamook County Chamber of Commerce. Some believe they came from the cargo of the San Francisco Xavier, a Spanish galleon which wrecked in 1705 as it was headed from Mexico to the Philippines. Dr. Cook, who taught at Castleton Teachers College in Vermont and was in the process of writing a book titled The Spanish in the Pacific Northwest, saw a picture in the newspapers of Alex Walker holding a piece of beeswax he had found, he said. From the marking, it is undoubtedly from a Spanish ship which visited the area in the early days. It appears to be one of the largest and best preserved pieces in existence. He said that beeswax was once found along the coast in large quantities, but it was destroyed by those who didn't realize what they had found. These specimens came from Spanish ships that were wrecked off the coast. The Santo Cristo de Burgos left Manila, then a Spanish colony, on what was supposed to be a normal trading voyage. It sailed into oblivion until 2022. The galleon had filled its hold with beeswax, Chinese porcelain, and silk bound for Mexico. Somewhere in the northern Pacific, it ran into some type of disaster. Seven years later, an earthquake measuring 9.0 on the Richter scale swallowed part of the Oregon coastline and then returned it inside a tsunami. This event was known as a Great Cascadia earthquake. The galleon and its cargo were thrown onto the shore coastline, among all the other debris returned to the shore. The Maritime Archaeological Society researched legends of a burning ship and its survivors retold by the Nihalem Indians 
It involved tales of lost treasure and locals finding pieces of Chinese porcelain shards along the shoreline. According to the oral histories of the Nihalem Indians, crewmen from the ship lived with them for some time, leaving descendants who are in the area until this day. Other stories contradict this version, in which the crew who survived the wreck were killed by the natives. Examination of the porcelain proved they came from the Xangxi period of the late 17th century, which corresponded with a time period the ships were sailing between Manila and Mexico. According to Spanish naval records, two galleons were lost during these years. It was the Santo Cristo de Burgos sailing from Manila to Acapulco and the San Francisco Javier lost in 1705. However, examination of large wooden timbers recovered in coastal sea caves find a date to before the tsunami, ruling out the San Francisco Javier. Radiocarbon dating on the wood indicated it was built in the 1650s from Asian lumber. The earliest reference to the wreck date back to 1813, when fur trader Alexander Henry said the local Clatsop tribe were trading large amounts of beeswax they said came from a shipwreck near Nihalem Bay. Teak from the ship's lumber were used to build furniture and souvenirs. Much of the beeswax was marked with Spanish shipping symbols, and wings of bees native to the Philippines were found trapped in the wax. It is a mystery why the galleon was sailing off the coast of Oregon, north of its route to Mexico, unless it was damaged and drifted off course. In 2006, a group of archaeologists from the Maritime Archaeology Society started the Beeswax Wreck Research Project, using the shards of Chinese porcelain recovered thus far by beachcombers. A group of volunteers were looking for clues through the local lore that had accumulated through the years about the Beeswax Wreck. Ronald Sports, a professor at Vanderbilt University, was part of the group, and in 2018 he was reviewing 17th century records from Spain and found the personnel manifest of the ship. There were 231 persons on board its last voyage. There were 215 officers and crew members. 62 weren't Spanish, but Creoles from the Philippines, China, Malaysia, and other cultures. There were only 16 passengers composed of military personnel and clergy. There were no women. There's an oral tradition in which 30 survivors, some which sported long ponytails, possibly the non-Spanish crew, made it to the shore. In a tantalizing clue, a rock at Oswald State Park, south of Manzanita, the initials HM were carved in old-style lettering into it. One of the crew was named Hernando Munoz. Could this have been him? Could the story that all who survived and made it to the beach were killed, or were they instead integrated into the tribes living there, leaving descendants in the area? In 1915, an article described where a primitive Spanish cannon had been found nine miles north of Nihalem Bay in what became known as Cannon Beach. There was another account of a second cannon found on Nihalem Beach. What became of the cannons after their discovery is unknown. In 2013, Craig Andes, a beachcomber, found timber sticking out of the sand in caves, which initially no one believed belonged to a shipwreck. It turned out he was right. A waterlogged beam was turned over to archaeologists in 2020, hoping it would provide more answers to the centuries-old mystery, all except the final resting place of the Santo Cristo de Burgos. Experts believe the lower hull of the galleon is somewhere offshore. In 2022, more pieces were recovered and are the first piece of physical evidence to confirm its existence. The numerous stories circulated about the lost ship caught the attention of director Steven Spielberg. This was the jumping-off point for the idea behind the 1985 movie, The Goonies, where a group of kids use a map to find the hidden treasures left behind by One-Eyed Willie, 
a 17th century pilot. Pirate. Isn't that great? I love this story. Because for, for over 100 years, people have been finding artifacts that it's not like usual debris that comes out of the sea. All right? And again, there's one mystery. Why was it drifting so far off course? It was, it was going from Manila, from the Philippines, to Acapulco, which is much further south. Okay? And what happened? And again, um, because at some point was it, was the, obviously, well, I don't know if back then they had weather patterns, but, and, uh, and again, maybe it did founder a little bit further out, but with the, um, the tsunami, it brought everything over there to where they were at on the shoreline. Very interesting story. All right. Um, this is a story out of Vice, and it's titled, First Responders Are Testing Futuristic Jet Suits. I think that's so cool. F personal flying suits like those worn by Boba Fett or Iron Man are one of those iconic symbols of a dreamy future that seem perpetually on the horizon. But real-life working jet suits developed by the British company Gravity Industries are actually in use right now and in trial rescue operations, military training exercises, and competitive races. Surreal videos of the suit in action show first responders ascending up mountain slopes, soldiers gliding across ocean water to board ships, and the jet suit's inventor, Richard Browning, demonstrating its flight capabilities in a variety of settings. Browning, the founder and chief test pilot of Gravity Industries, is a lifelong tinkerer from a family steeped in aviation. The jet suit is a culmination of the eclectic skills collected across his career, including an entrepreneurial streak from his work as an oil trader for British Petroleum and a deep respect for human physical capabilities instilled by his time as a Royal Marine Reservist. If you put all that together, I just hatched this idea in 2016 as the latest in a succession of side projects and unusual ideas, Browning said in a call. Could you imagine human flight but start at the smallest end? Start with a balanced human physicality and add a missing component, which I thought probably was just horsepower. No, no kidding. To date, the jet suit has been featured in over 200 events in 26 nations. Browning was about to head from his home in Salisbury in the United Kingdom to California for a demonstration at the Sonoma Raceway. Browning also used his invention to snatch the world speed record for body-controlled jet engine-powered suit, which he said at 85 miles per hour in 2019. Gravity Industries has now developed about six suits, each powered by five gas turbines that generate 300 pounds of thrust with 1,050 brake horsepower. Meanwhile, more than 500 people have been trained to fly the suit, including paramedics at the Great North Air Ambulance Service, an emergency response charity based in northern England. For the moment, the jet suit is still only being tested as a potential emergency vehicle, and it will need to be fine-tuned over many more iterations before it can be deployed in a medical context. Jamie Walsh, a helicopter emergency medical service paramedic at GNAAS, who has conducted trial flights of the jet suit over the nation's scenic lake district, said there were many variables that will determine its efficacy in medical emergencies, but that he thinks the technology certainly has potential. I feel quite lucky to have the opportunity to be in a position to trial this type of innovation and this kit to see if we can help people. 
Walsh said in a call, I feel like I have to pinch myself from time to time. How did I end up flying a jet suit around one of the most beautiful parts of the country? I was probably one of the biggest skeptics initially, Walsh added, noting that the suit seemed gimmicky to him when he first heard about it. But actually, now we're doing these trials and I'm seeing what's capable of. He continued, this can genuinely save lives if we operationalize it in an appropriate way. The Gravity Industries jet suit is not the only personal jet-powered flying vehicle in the world. Some of the most prominent alternate designs include a jetpack developed by the California-based company Jetpack Aviation or the jet-powered flyboard flown by French pilot Frankie Zapata. But Browning's version differs in part due to the turbines attached to the hands, which enables pilots to maneuver with a posture similar to leaning on a desk. It's quite a visceral feeling because you're well aware that you've got five jet engines strapped to your body producing about a thousand horsepower, Walsh said of the suit's handling. When you're watching someone flying, it's really loud. It sounds really raw and almost untamed, but actually, when you're in the suit and you're in that bubble, you've got your earplugs in and your helmet on, it's quite calm and graceful almost when it is done well. For his part, Browning is still floored by all the applications that are blossoming from what he called a ludicrous idea he had years ago, though he's excited to oversee the possibility through military, industrial, entertainment, and medical uses for the jet suit and the many other roles it might play in other spheres. He never imagined his side hobby would experience such a meteoric rise. It was one of those rare opportunities in life where I was just doing it purely and genuinely for the joy of the challenge of whether it would work. Browning said of the Jetsuit's origins, it all sounds mad still. And you know what's really funny? I remember when uh, once upon a time they had something like this on Johnny Quest. So anyway, let's get on to the next story. This is out of Stranger. No, this is this is out of my, this is an article I wrote on my Substack newsletter. And it's titled The Origins of the Horror Film, The Changeling. Um, and uh, the 1980 film The Changeling starring George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer is based on paranormal events Russell Hunter experienced while living in an old home near Cheeseman Park in the late 1960s. Hunter, who died in 1996, worked as a musical arranger for CBS TV in New York City, but moved to Colorado in the mid-1960s to help his parents manage the Three Birches Lodge in Boulder. In the late 1960s, Hunter began looking for an apartment in Denver where he could live and work on his music. He rented a home at 1739 East 13th Avenue, which has since been torn down for only $200. He said this was because no one else wanted to live there. Hunter claimed that beginning on February 9, 1969, he started experiencing strange phenomena in the house. First, there was the unbelievable banging and crashing that started like clockwork at 6 a.m., and then would immediately stop when he placed his feet on the floor. Unseen hands would turn on faucets and doors opened and closed on their own. Paintings would fall to the floor as the walls vibrated. He told of meeting an unnamed man at a social gathering who told him the house had a third floor that could be reached through narrow concealed stairs behind the wall of a second floor closet. With the help of an architect friend, he found it as described. In the secreted garret room, he found a small trunk filled with a nine-year-old school books and journal from a century ago. The diary's author was a disabled boy kept hidden on the third floor. He described his favorite toy was a red ball, also inside the trunk. A few nights after discovering the trunk, a red rubber ball dropped from the top of the spiral staircase in the home, allegedly 
This was witnessed by more than 30 people. Hunter conducted a seance. The spirit of the child was channeled. He was heir to a fortune through his maternal grandfather. However, he was a sickly child. When he died, his parents concealed his death and buried him in a field in what was then a remote part of southeast Denver. They adopted a child from an orphanage to take the place of the dead boy and instructed him to accept his new identity. This healthy boy grew to adulthood and became successful, and as a changeling claimed the inheritance meant for another. According to Hunter, the troubled spirit of the boy gave him directions to where his body had been concealed under a house on South Dahlia Street. He gained permission to dig. Bones and a gold medal inscribed with the child's name were buried deep in the ground. Coincidentally, the family who owned the house also owned the farmland where the human remains and the gold medallion were found. The discovery did not ease the spirit and the activity around Hunter escalated. He said glass doors blew up in my face and severed an artery in my wrist. The inner walls over the head of my bed violently imploded. He moved to a house on Kearney Street, but the disturbances followed him there. Realizing that perhaps the entity was more malevolent than what he originally thought, he followed his friend's advice and sought the help of a priest from Denver's Epiphany Episcopal Church to exercise the structure. The priest who, remained, who wished to remain anonymous commented about Hunter. He did seem to have a problem. We performed the rites of exorcism in his second house on Kearney Street. Whether the rites were successful or not is unknown. However, he did not call the priest again. Soon after, the Treat Rogers mansion was demolished. Hunter said he came to see its destruction and said, As the walls of the wing which had contained my bedroom collapsed, they suddenly flew outward and crushed to death the man operating the bulldozer. The history of the Denver house that inspired a horror film. At the turn of the century, and this is the actual history, this is prior to, to Russell living there. At the turn of the century, a childless couple lived in the home at 1739 East 13th Avenue, Cheeseman Park, in central Denver. The couple, Henry Treat Rogers, a prominent lawyer who passed away in 1922, and his wife, Kate Rogers, filed a permit with the city of Denver in July of 1892 to build a brick dwelling in the Wyman's edition of Denver. Architect Henry Ten Eyck Wendell designed the home. However, this land had its own peculiar history. It all started in 1858, when Mr. Biencroft came to mind with his three sons and a son-in-law named John Stoffel. They built a cabin at Vasquez Fork. The enterprising German family not only panned for gold, but owned livestock. One day, Mr. Biencroft and two of his sons went off to look for lost cattle. When they returned, the third brother was gone. The only other person who stayed behind was John Stoffel, and his queer behavior instantly made them suspicious. Soon neighbors came to help look for the missing man. He was found behind a log out in the woods, shot through the head. John Stoffel was arrested and brought to Auraria, which is West Denver. On April the 8th, he appeared before temporary magistrate and admitted he murdered Thomas Biencroft, but his reasons were far from ordinary. He described where he followed his brother-in-law from Germany to the United States for the purpose of murdering him. What he was avenging was never known. In those days, there was no cell to hold him in, nor place to try him. The people gathered for an informal deliberation, and since there was no doubt of his guilt, they decided to hang him. All that was needed was rope, a wagon, and a yoke of oxen. He was executed at a large cottonwood tree. Noisy Tom, an eccentric and well-known character, played the part of executioner. Soon, the tree was cut down. John Stoffel became the first burial at Prospect Hill Cemetery, staked out by General William Larimer at the corner of Cheeseman and Congress. The informal names of the graveyard was Boneyard and Boot Hill. An undertaker named Mr. Wally took over the cemetery by 1866, had buried 626 persons there. 
1872, the cemetery became the property of the United States due to a treaty with the Arapaho. The city of Denver then brought it, then bought it for $1.25 per acre. It was renamed the Denver City Cemetery. By 1890, it had fallen into disuse, and it was decided to convert it to a park. Families were instructed to move the graves of their loved ones. They were offered a free plot as an incentive, but after three years, only 700 were moved. E.P. McGovern, a local undertaker, was hired to take care of those unclaimed. For every box he delivered to Riverside Cemetery, he received $1.90. He was found trying to cheat the city, and his workers were robbing the graves for any personal effects found inside the coffins. He was fired, even though the work was unfinished. No one else was hired to complete the work. The cemetery was converted to Cheeseman Park, which opened in 1907, and soon whispered rumors circulated the grounds were haunted. Some estimate that as many as 4,000 bodies were left behind, but the true number has not been ascertained. However, every time irrigation work is started, bones are found. Besides the forgotten dead, located just south of the cemetery was a pest house, or a pestilence hospital, for contagious patients, which received thousands of souls that were left there to die. Some think the fear of contagion, especially smallpox, was another reason why so many bodies were left behind. In 2010, while completing irrigation work at Cheeseman Park, city employees unearthed four skeletons. The coroner found they were over a century old. If there was ever a tombstone to commemorate them, it is long gone. Perhaps they were criminals or paupers, and they were anonymous from the beginning. They were reinterred in Mount Olivet Cemetery. Now back to the story of the Rogers family. The location of the Rogers' new home was probably built over forgotten graves, but no doubt ignorance is bliss, and the house was built as they specified. Though the couple did not have children, they did have a niece and nephew who spent time living in their home. The niece, Frances Clark Ristine, came from Illinois to live with the Rogers when she was 10 years old and stayed until her marriage to George Ristine. After living in Chicago for several years, Frances and her husband returned to Denver after the death of her uncle, Henry Treat Rogers, in 1922. They lived in the 13th Avenue house with Kate Rogers, who formally adopted Frances as her daughter around 1927. Frances became the longtime secretary for Denver Orphans Home and the president of the Globeville Day Nursery while living in Denver. She inherited 1739 East 13th Avenue and a small fortune after the death of her aunt, in 1931. She followed Mrs. Rogers to the grave after only three years. Her husband, George Washington Restine, inherited the money. He died in 1966. Francis Restine's brother, Henry Treat Rogers II, graduated from Yale in 1914 and came to work in his uncle's law firm, Roger Ellison Johnson, around 1916. This younger Henry Treat Rogers also lived in his uncle's house on 13th Avenue. However, he enlisted in 1917 to fight in World War I and never returned to the house. He died in 1918 at the age of 25. What if Russell Hunter, whose true surname was Ellis, never lived in the mansion at all? According to the Denver Library, that may be the case. The research they have shows his parents did own the Three Birches Lodge in Boulder, and that may have been in Denver in the late 1960s. Unfortunately, there are no records explicitly putting him at the house. At some point, the Bombay Club was located at the house. The exact years are not known. At some point, the Bombay Club was located at the house. The exact years are not known. In 2015, a blogger named Larry posted the following. 
my family, parents with seven kids, moved into this house in 1959 when I was eight years old. It was a huge house with two separate staircases leading to the second floor, one with a halfway landing and the other with an enclosed spiral coming off the kitchen for servants. I never experienced any paranormal activities. Perhaps the ghost enjoyed the company of all the children. In a strange coincidence, Peter Medak, the director of the Changely, became fascinated with the story because of recent deaths in his family. His older brother died, and in 1971, his wife Catherine Lacarmance Medak, 28, committed suicide by jumping from a fourth-floor apartment in Harley Street, Marleybone, London. She fell into a basement area and was pronounced dead upon her arrival at Middlesex Hospital. Her husband was away visiting his mother. And in 2021, a blogger, Frost MCC, wrote, when I was nine or ten, I used to bag Mr. Hunter's leaves. He lived down the street from my family with his black dog, Loki. His house was filled with antiques and a large piano, which he played well. I witnessed a few interesting situations at his home. The story he told me was of a little boy who was killed by a coal cart in front of the mansion. The boy's name was Eric. That was the spirit that haunted the mansion and supposedly followed Mr. Hunter to his new residence near me great individual. I moved in 88, never saw him again. I believe he passed in 94. Which, you know, this dovetails a lot of when you see the actual changeling. There's all these, um, like a good writer, he incorporated his own personal experiences into the storyline, okay, which is, uh, you know, the, the death of a child uh, by, with a, by a cold cart, uh, which they mistakenly think is the ghost. And there's one part here that I did see that at some point, Russell Hunter claimed that the family that had owned the land and the, the other piece of land were out to get him. They were trying to put out a hit on him because of the book, because they said it was too uh, too close to the truth. And that they basically, and tried to deep six his book, which by the way, it's true. The actual book, or anything having to do is very hard to find. That was, and I don't know if this guy was paranoid or he was just thinking this would make a good, you know, a good selling feature. But anyway, I think that's super interesting. Where there's, I mean, I love the Changeling. I think the Changeling is one of the best ghost stories out there. And of course, with George C. Scott. But besides that, there is some type of, what can I say, a flavor of the truth behind there somewhere. All right, now let's go on to. This is out of Vintage News, and it's titled The Dark History Behind Mississippi's Famous Turning Angel Statue. A 1908 explosion in Natchez, Mississippi, rocked the city to its core. The casualties of the explosion were buried at the famed Natchez Cemetery, and today there stands a statue to protect those whose lives are lost. The Turning Angel Statue may watch you as you pass. You would have to see it to believe it, as it's both creepy and fascinating. At the corner of Main and South Union Street stood the Natchez Drug Company. The building, which was originally called the Temple Opera House, was purchased in 1904 by John H. Chambliss, the president of Natchez Drug Company. On March 14, 1908, the five-story brick building experienced a gas explosion that caused the entire structure to collapse. That morning, employees of the Natchez Drug Company complained of the smell of gas in the building. A plumber was called for, Sam Burns, and when he arrived in the afternoon, he began to look for a gas leak. Using the light from a candle, he searched the basement. Unfortunately, he was successful at finding the leak. The explosion caused by the gas meeting, his lit candle ripped through the entire building. Some employees of the Natchez Drug Company were still working while the plumber was searching for a gas leak. As a result, 
Many employees perished in the explosion. Among them were five young women, the youngest being only 12 years old. The explosion absolutely devastated the city, but it also had a significant effect on President Chambliss as well. He was upset at the loss of his company, which went out of business following the explosion, but he was utterly heartbroken at the loss of life the explosion had caused. In an effort to share his condolences with those who lost loved ones in the explosion, Shamless bought a lot at the Natchez Cemetery and paid for the cost of the girls' burial. Their tombstones simply read their last names. So to commemorate those young women further, he commissioned the creation of a stone angel. The angel was placed in a location that makes it seem as though it is watching over those five tombstones. The stone angel has become an attraction in the historic Natchez Cemetery. Sealy Lore says that the stone angel actually turns to look at cars passing by on Cemetery Road. As if driving by a cemetery at night wasn't spooky enough, some believe that the angel watches as you pass by. Said to be most visible at night, as cars drive around the bend in the road, some say that the angel's face follows the glare of their headlights. This has given the statue the nickname, the Turning Angel. On January 23, 2020, the t Turning Angel was found damaged, lying on its back on the ground. Workers of the cemetery found the monument there and contacted police. Through surveillance cameras, it was determined that someone had vandalized the statue by rocking it back and forth until it fell off its pedestal at 1 a.m. that morning. The damages to the Turning Angel are estimated to be approximately $40,000. A fund has yet to be set up to raise donations to restore the monument to its original beauty and rightful place, watching over the five young ladies whose lives are tragically lost in the Natchez Drug Company explosion. I think this is a so interesting story, but it makes you wonder why, who, what kind of person does this? A statue of an angel that was placed to commemorate five girls that were killed in an explosion over a hundred years ago? One of two things. Either someone that's not well in the head, and let's leave it at that, and has got nothing better to do, too much time on their hands, or somebody that's not well in the head, but uh, has a has a okay a dislike let's go that way a dislike of religious as in angel things okay in other words they have a leaning towards the darker side and uh this is like uh going out there and doing something for their side ah, maybe it's a little bit out there but maybe not as much as you may think all right the next uh article is out of mental floss and it's titled eight supposedly cursed books before there were newfangled conveniences like cursed phone numbers and sinister Kleenex commercials, people had to make do with plain old cursed books. You never knew what genre they might be lurking in. There were the obvious possibilities like remorse and other magical texts. But stories of curses have also been attached to novels, encyclopedias, histographies, and even poetry collections. But considering their relative scarcity, your odds of avoiding cursed books are pretty good. Back in 2010, Google estimated that 130 million unique books had been published so far, and the number has grown considerably in the last 12 years. But when author J.W. Ocker was putting together his 2020 book, Cursed Objects, he struggled to find books that were cursed enough to make the cut. One of my criteria for determining a cursed object of any kind for my book was, is there a body count? Ocker tells mental flaws, and I don't think I ever came across a cursed book that had one. Another problem, Ocker says, is that when we talk about cursed books, what we're 
describing usually isn't a curse in the traditional sense of the word. Every time I came across a cursed book, it wasn't actually cursed, he explains. It was more like supernaturally dangerous, like a spell book. For instance, owning or coming into contact with a book didn't cause harm or misfortune the way, say, a cursed chair or vase would. Instead, if you tried the spells in the books, the spells were dangerous. Ocker notes that there were also the matter of the curses medieval scribes would attach to the books they painstakingly wrote by hand. But those were meant as theft deterrents. There's no evidence they actually worked, so they didn't count for this purpose. Every now and then, though, a book gets a bad reputation. Maybe misfortune seems to follow it wherever it goes, or maybe an urban legend catches on in some creepy corner of the internet. Or maybe, and here's where things get especially interesting, representatives of powerful institutions simply don't want the book to be read. From a diabolical Bible to a mournful Japanese war poem, there are eight texts that have been blamed for madness, misfortune, and death. Number one is the Codex Gigas. If cursing power were based solely on a book size, the Codex Gigas, a.k.a. the Devil's Bible, would probably be the most dangerous book ever written. Weighing in at 165 pounds and measuring about 3 feet in height, the roughly 800-year-old tome is thought to be the world's largest surviving medieval manuscript. Codex Gigas literally means giant book. The manuscript's exact origins have been lost to time, but historians believe it was written at some point between 1204 and 1230 in the Kingdom of Bohemia, part of what would become the Czech Republic. According to the National Library of Sweden, the book was owned by at least three different monasteries before Emperor Rudolf II added it to his private collection, which would also soon include the Voynich Manuscript in 1594. In 1648, it was claimed by the Swedish army during the 30 years war taken to Stockholm. It has been housed in Sweden's National Library since 1768. While many illuminated texts were produced by teams of scribes, scholars believe the Codex Gigas is the work of a single copyist. Written entirely in Latin, the book contains both Old and New Testaments, along with Czech and Jewish history texts, an encyclopedia with information on geometry, legal matters, and entertainment, among other topics, medical treaties, hundreds of obituaries, several magic spells, and a calendar. The book's sinister reputation stems from a full-color portrait of the devil contained in its pages and a legend about how the image got there. According to folklore, the book is the work of a monk, possibly Hermanus Hereditatis, or Herman the Recluse, who had broken his vows and been sentenced to be walled up alive in the monastery. He struck a deal to save himself. If over the course of a single night he could write a book containing all the world's knowledge, his life would be spared. When he realized the task was impossible, the monk sold his soul to the devil, who helped him finish the book and signed it with a now infamous portrait. Other versions of the story says the monk added the illustration as a gesture of gratitude for Satan's assistance. There are several tales of misfortune attached to the Codex Gigas, but the curse seems to be fairly benign, considering the book was supposedly co-written by Beelzebub. One legend dating back to at least 1858 maintains that a guard was institutionalized after being accidentally locked in Sweden's National Library overnight. He was supposedly found under a table the next morning, claiming to have seen the Godis Gigas join a procession of books as they danced through the air. Hmm. Number two, the Book of Soiga. The Book of so Soiga, a.k.a. Aldrea Sive Soiga Vokor, is an occult text that dates to at least the 1500s. We know about it only because it was once owned by John Dee, a famous 16th century polymath whose field of studies and expertise included mathematics, physics, chemistry, and astronomy. Dee was also an occultist who was particularly interested in communicating with angels. 
the book of Soiga must have been irresistible to him. Besides magical spells and writings about demonology and astrology, the text includes the names and genealogies of angels. According to Benjamin Woolley Dee's biography, The Queen's Conjurer, Dee believed the book contained an ancient, even divine message written in the language originally spoken to Adam. In other words, the true unspoiled word of God. It also includes 36 cryptic tables that remain undeciphered for centuries. Dee attempted to crack their code with the help of Edward Kelly, a crystal gazer who convinced Dee he could channel the voices of angels. Kelly sometimes spelled his name K-E-L-L-Y, or went by Edward Talbot. Having aliases was probably helpful to the supposed medium, who had reportedly been convicted of counterfeiting and possibly had his ears cut off as punishment. According to Sky History, Dee was so eager to talk to angels that when Kelly told him the angels wanted the two men to swap wives for an evening as payment for celestial communication, Dee agreed. Nine months later, Theodore Dee was born. Using Kelly as a go-between, Delhi dialed up the archangel Uriel and asked him if the Book of Soiga was the real deal. Uriel, speaking through Kelly, assured him that it was, but told him that only the archangel Michael was authorized to translate the tables. Apparently, Michael wasn't available. This exchange might be the source of the Book of Soiga's reputation as a cursed book, or, as it is sometimes known, the book that kills. At one point, Dee mentioned to Uriel that he hadn't been told he'd die within two and a half years if he ever read the encoded text. Uriel assured Dee he'd live for more than a hundred years. About that reputation, though, most of the references we could find to the Book of Soiga being a cursed text comes from online sources, and there doesn't seem to be any verifiable tales of misfortune attached to the book. Dee died in 1608 at the age of 81. The Book of Soiga changed hands a couple of times before vanishing from the historical record. Fast forward 300 years to the summer of 1994. Deborah Harkness had just finished her doctoral dissertation titled John Dee's Conversations with the Angels and was browsing through the catalog at Oxford's Bodleian Library when she found a reference to Aldaria of Sivig Soiga. She had the book brought up and soon found herself staring at the Holy Grail of Dee scholarship. The experience inspired Harkness's first novel, A Discovery of Witches, which kicked off a best-selling trilogy and has since been adapted for television. In 1998, mathematician Jim Reeds cracked the code of its mysterious tables. Reeds discovered a pattern involving the frequency and position of certain letters in relation to other letters. Or in his words, a letter is obtained by counting a certain number of letters after the letter immediately above it in the table. Reeds came up with a set of mathematical formulae that allowed him to decipher the tables, each of which turned out to be based on a six-word letter or code word but we still don't know the meaning of those code words or what message the tables were meant to communicate, or even if there is one. As for the curse, it appears to have been a dud. According to Google, scholars Reeds was still publishing at the least as late as 2010. The Book of Bramelin. This one should sound familiar to horror fans. It played a pivotal role in the 2016 film festival standout, A Dark Song. The book, the book of Abramelin, or more formally, the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, is a Jewish magic text that is thought to date back to the 14th or 15th century, but it owes its current notoriety to the 19th and 20th century magicians who made up the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. One of the Order's founders, S.L.M. Mathers, created the book's first English translation in the 1890s, working from a 1750 French version. According to writer and occultist, Lon Milo Duquette's forward to a 2006 edition, 
Mather's translation caught on with his peers and the Book of Abramelin, or simply the Abramelin, as it's known in the magic community, became a key text of modern occultism, supposedly helping to inspire Aleister Crowley's system of magic. The centerpiece of the Abramelin is an elaborate multi-month ritual aimed at allowing the sorcerer to commune with their holy guardian angel, essentially their celestial other half. The trouble lies in what happens after a three-day period in which the mages locked in blissful intimacy with the angel. Duquette writes, once the honeymoon is over, the sorcerer must summon up and conquer each and every unredeemed spirit of the infernal regions. In other words, one might surmise all the demons of hell. Supposedly, the angel would be there to coach the magician through all that conquering. <laughs> but it still sounds really hard. According to Duquette, the Abramelin's reputation as a curse book might stem from the fact that it contained instruction for defeating the world's evil spirits. Surely the spirits would prefer to keep the information quiet, and word got around that even owning a copy was risky business. But it might be worth a gamble. Besides, how-to guides for summoning angels and demons. The Abramelin includes spells for turning someone into a donkey, conjuring up some juggling spirit monkeys, and compelling a spirit to bring you cheese. Number four, the orphan story. Historia del Huelfano, or The Orphan Story, is a book, is a novel written by a Spanish monk named Martin de Leon y Cárdenas, sometimes between 1608 and 1615. Martin de Leon originally planned to publish the novel in 1621 under the pseudonym Andrés de Leon, but that never happened. According to The Guardian, it's been speculated that he left the book unpublished because he feared it would damage his standing in the Roman Catholic Church. He was appointed Bishop of Trivento in 1630 and Archbishop of Palermo in 1650. The book was long thought lost, but in 1965, a Spanish scholar found what's thought to be the only surviving copy in the New York archives of the Hispanic Society of America. There were several attempts to publish it, but none of them worked out, and rumors began to circulate that the orphan story was cursed. The project eventually found its way to a Peruvian phyologist named Belinda Palacios, who spent two years preparing the manuscript for publication. Soon after she signed on to edit the book, the warnings began. When I started working on it, a lot of people told me the book was cursed and that people who started working on it died, Palacios told The Guardian in 2018. She was more specific in an interview with The Telegraph that same year. It's taken a while because the people who have worked on it have died, one from a strange disease, one in a car accident, and another of something else. According to the Endless Thread podcast, the casualties include a Spanish scholar named Antonio Rodriguez Monino who died in 1970, and a professor of Spanish named William C. Bryant. In 2017, 400 years after it was written, the orphan story was finally published. Palacios has so far been untroubled by the curse. She teaches Spanish-American literature at two universities in Switzerland, and in 2022 she published a novel of her own called Niña Gordita. Okay, but what is this, what is the book about? The orphan story! The novel, what is it? Just though, I mean, all the, okay, like what, you know, the other ones they describe, you know, you summon demons, angels, all this other stuff. So what is the orphan story about? Hmm. Okay. Had to have been something way out there. This guy thought, hmm, shoot, should I publish my novel or do I want to keep going up, up the ranks of the Catholic Church? Hmm. I, I think I'll just put this book away for a while. Okay. Number five is The Grand Grimoire. While some stories surrounding allegedly cursed books can be chalked up to coincidence and superstition, some tell another stranger tale, one that's tied to the power of literacy and a conspiracy to frighten people away from books that threaten the status quo. In his 1898 text, The Book of Black Magic and Pax, British occultist and scholar Arthur Edward Waite 
identifies the Grand Grimoire as one of the four specific and undisguised handbooks of black magic. The book contained details and instructions for summoning Satan's right-hand man, Lucifuge Rofocale. According to historian Owen Davies, the Grand Grimoire has been dated to 1702, but it's most likely made its debut around 1750. It became a publishing sensation. In his 2010 book, Grimoires, A History of Magic Books, Davy calls it the first explicitly diabolical mass market grimoire. It's the book's popularity, rather than its content, that might have led to its reputation as a dangerous or cursed book. In France, the Grand Grimoire was one of several spell books that were widely distributed in chapbook form and sold in bookstores in the 19th century. Davy suggests that church officials feared the book threatened their authority and embarked on a successful campaign to vilify them. People began to view books like the Grand Grimoire as sinister. Even the simple act of buying a copy was thought to be dangerous. Well, you know, you know what? This I know that back then that a lot of people were vilified, and you know, just to get rid. But let's face it: if the Catholic Church or any church objected to a book that was about black magic, I can understand why they would have problems with it. It's come on, come on. <laughs> that doesn't take much of an imagination to figure out why they wouldn't want that book to be around. Okay, number six is The Great Omar. The book known as The Great Omar was a custom-made edition of a collection of quatrains by 11th century Persian poet Omar Khayyam, who became known in the West after writer Edward Fitzgerald translated some of his verses in 1859. The book seems to have been relatively untroubled until 1911, when renowned bookbinder Francis Sangorsky put the finishing touches on an elaborate edition commissioned by the manager of a London bookshop. Sangorsky was given an unlimited budget for the project and only two mandates. That the final product be worth whatever price Sangorsky decided on and that it be the greatest modern binding in the world. Sangorsky labored over every detail for two years. To get design elements right, he borrowed a human skull for reference and bribed a zookeeper to feed a live rat to a snake so he could see the angle of his jaws as the reptile fed. According to the BBC, he used 100 square feet of gold leaf 5,000 pieces of leather and more than a 1,000 precious gemstones, including rubies, topazes, and emeralds. But once it was finished, the commissioning bookshop, which priced it at 1,000 pounds, or roughly $150,000, in today's market, had trouble selling it. They decided to give the American book market a try, but a dust-up with U.S. customs officers sent the book back to London. It finally sold at auction to an American buyer for less than half of its original asking price. So the great Omar hitched another cross-Atlantic ride on the Titanic. Ten weeks later, Sangorsky drowned while on vacation with his family. He was only 37 years old. Sangorsky's masterpiece was never recovered from the wreckage of the Titanic, but the great Omar was recreated in the 1930s using his original plans. Bookbinder Stanley Bray finished his version just as World War II began. To protect the new edition from German bombs, it was placed in a vault on London's 4th Street, which ended up being one of the first sites targeted by Nazi warplanes. The safe that held the book survived the blitz, but the book didn't. Temperatures inside the container rose so high that the book's leather and paper components were melted and charred. According to the Independent, only the jewels were spared. Bray was indeterred, and he spent some 4,000 hours over the course of 40 years creating a third edition of The Great Omar. This version seems to have escaped the curse. Bray lived to be 88 years old, and the third Omar is safely housed in the British Library. As for the sources of the book's troubles, some suspect the trio of bejeweled peacocks on the cover. According to the Encyclopedia of Superstition, some cultures believe peacock feathers bring bad luck. And I've heard of that before. I was very surprised because I personally love peacock feathers. 
Number seven, Written in Blood. Written in Blood is the work of Robert and Nancy Heinel, who spent years enmeshed in Haiti's political turmoil. When the book was published in 1978, Robert Heinel was a retired Marine Corps colonel who had served as a defense advisor to the Haitian government. He and his wife, a London-born journalist, had lived in Haiti for several years when they, as well as other Americans, were kicked out of the country in 1963 as relations... Wait, oh, wait a minute, I lost my place here. As relations deteriorated between the United States and the government of Francois Papadoc Duvalier. Heinel's um, Washington Post obituary says he was declared persona non grata as a result of policy differences between the United States and Haiti's President Francois Duvalier. But stories surrounding the publication of Written in Blood tell an eerier story. According to the Washington Post, Nancy Heinel became so immersed in voodoo beliefs that Duvalier was convinced she was a priestess with mystical powers. Duvalier died in 1971, seven years before the Heinel's book was published. But according to Vikas Katri's 2000 book, Curses and Jinxes, Duvalier's widow, Simone, apparently took offense to written in blood's unflattering depiction of the late leader and placed the voodoo curse on the book. The Washington Post says the manuscript was somehow lost at the printer's then stolen as it was being sent back to the publisher. When the book was eventually sent for binding, the folding machine malfunctioned. The curse apparently extended to the book's publicity campaign. The first Washington Post reporter assigned to cover it was derailed by an appendicitis. At home, the authors claimed other non-electrical clocks stopped. Other misfortunes suffered by the Heinels were less benign. Robert was injured when a stage collapsed beneath him while he was delivering a speech, and a few days later, he was attacked by a dog while walking near the couple's embassy row home. In May 1979, while the Heinels were vacationing in the French, French West Indies, just months after Written in Blood was published, Robert Heinel died suddenly of a heart attack. After his death, Nancy reportedly said, There is a belief that the closer you get to Haiti, the more powerful the magic becomes. If the Heinels were in fact the victims of a voodoo curse, it wasn't the first time the Duvalier family had allegedly turned to black magic to exact revenge on their perceived enemies, according to the Encyclopedia of U.S.-Latin American Relations. Duvalier claimed the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. in November of 1963 was a result of a voodoo curse he had placed on Kennedy after the young president, suspecting financial malfeasance on Duvalier's part, had suspended aid to Haiti the previous year. You know what, that thing about the JFK, it's stand in line. I mean, the cast of characters who could possibly have supposedly done it, it's like, you got to go to the back of the line. All right, number eight, Tomino's Hell. Tomino's Hell dates back to 1919 when it was included in Sakin, a book of poems by Japanese poet and songwriter Saijo Yasuo. The poem seems to recount a young boy's journey through hell. It had been speculated that Tomino had committed an unforgivable sin and had been damned to hell as punishment. But according to folklorist and translator Tara A. Devlin, Western readers are missing some important context clues and cultural references. And Tomino's hell is more likely an allegory for a young man's deployment to the battlefield where he may have been killed in action. The poem's long journey to creepypasta stardom is thought to have started in 1974 when it helped inspire a film called Pastoral to Die in the Country by avant-garde filmmaker Shuji Teriyama. Shuji lived for nine years after he made the movie, but somehow legend was born that blamed his 1983 death on Domino's hell. Liver disease was more likely the culprit. At some point, rumors also began to circulate about a college student who had supposedly died after reading the poem. Thus, the stage was set in 2004 when author and film critic Yamoda 
Inuhiko reportedly wrote, If you by chance happen to read Domino's Hell out loud, after you will suffer from a terrible fate which cannot be escaped. The poem made that leap to the internet and is now a classic example of creepypasta, an internet horror story that is passed around until it becomes a kind of urban legend. Creepypasta is a derivative of copypasta, a term of text that has been copied and pasted multiple times. The idea that Domino's Hell is cursed seems to have gained more traction in the West than in the poem's native Japan. Mental Floss reached out to two Japanese folklore experts, Meiji University's Lindsay Nelson, author of Circulating Fear, Japanese Horror Fractured Realities in New Media, and Zach Davison, author of Kaibo, Kaibo, The Supernatural Cats of Japan in Yurei, The Japanese Ghost, and neither was able to shed any light on the legend's roots. It's highly possible the idea of it being a cursed poem originated in the West, says Davison, citing a paucity of references to the legend in Japanese language scores. As for whether the poem has actually managed to make good on its alleged curse, Devlin writes that people have claimed to feel ill while reading this poem, but she points out that any physical effects can possibly be chalked up to auto-suggestion. Of course. All I can think about as far as Japanese-related is the ring. I don't know, that's what comes to mind. Those those Japanese ghost star men are relentless. They're going to get you sooner or later. All right, the next story is out of Life Science, and it's titled Lost Fossil Treasure Trove Rediscovered After 70 Years. Previous researchers were unable to record its exact coordinates. Scientists have finally rediscovered a lost fossil site in Brazil after the researchers who originally discovered it 70 years ago were unable to retrace their steps to the remote location. I'm going to interject, man. Somebody must have gotten in trouble over that. All right, let's keep going. The unique geologic conditions at the long-lost site preserve paleontological treasures that could help shed light on one of the biggest extinction events in Earth's history. The rediscovered site, which is known as Cerro Chato, is located near Brazil's border with Uruguay in the southern state of Rio Grande do Sul. Around 260 million years ago, towards the end of the Permian period, 299, 299 million to 251 million years ago, conditions at the site were ideal for trapping and preserving dead organisms. As a result, multiple rocky layers at Cerro Chato are chock full of delicate fossils, especially plants, which typically do not fossilize as well as animals do because they lack hard parts. Paleontologists who first discovered Cerro Chato in 1951 were excited by its exceptionally well-preserved Permian remains. Unfortunately, without memorable landmarks or modern technology such as GPS, the researchers were unable to accurately record the exact geographical coordinates of the site. And when they attempted to return to the Permian treasure trove, they could not find it. After several attempts to retrace their steps, the team gave up the search and declared the site lost. However, a new group of researchers took up the mantle and successfully found the lost location in 2019. For decades, the geographic location of the outcrop was unknown, which inspired the new research team to conduct a massive treasure hunt to find it again, said Jocelyn Manfroy, a paleobotanist at the University of Valle do Taqueri in Rio Grande do Sul, and co-author of a new study describing the rediscovered site. Fortunately, after so long, we will have the opportunity to continue writing the site's history through the fossil record. To date, more than 100 fossils, mostly plants, along with some fish and mollusks, have been uncovered at Cerro Chato by the original team and by the co-authors of the new study. Some of the fossilized plants are ancestors of modern-day conifers and ferns, the researchers reported. Wow, this is very neat. However, the new team suspects that these fossils are just the tip of the iceberg. When the original researchers 
discovered the site, they were only able to scratch the surface of Cerro Chato's fossil deposits before they lost track of its location. And though it was rediscovered almost three years ago, there's still a lot of ground to cover. The area to be explored is huge, led study author Josiane Salu-Feras, a doctoral candidate at the Federal University of Pampa and Rio Grande do Sul, said in the statement, I estimate that we haven't explored even 30% of all available space. The plant fossils at Cerro Chato could help researchers understand more about drastic changes that took place towards the end of the Permian, which triggered an extinction event that wiped out 90% of life on Earth. The fossils we are studying are of global importance as they direct testimonies of the changes that took place during the Permian period. Ferraz said, these studies will help us retrieve information about the distribution of these plants around the world. The team published its findings online on May 15th in the Brazilian Society of Paleontology's journey, Paleodest, and the study is available to download for free in English and Portuguese. This is so interesting because it was found. It was found. I was thinking, it was like one of those things that, hey, did you take notes? Did you take them out? Nah, nobody, nobody did anything. It was almost lost for, what, 60 years? Incredible. All right, the last article that we're going to go to is out of the Daily Mail, and it's titled, Tomb Link to King Arthur is to be dug up after 5,000 years undisturbed in an effort to learn more about the magical figure. A tomb dating back 5,000 years that has never been excavated before is said to be dug up. According to legend, Arthur Stone in Herefordshire has marks where King Arthur fell into his elbows after slaying a giant. The prehistoric monument is formed of nine stones topped by a stone which weighs 25 tons. English Heritage says that other sites in the same region have contained many skeletons. Ginny Slade of English Heritage said, Arthur Stone is one of the country's most significant Stone Age monuments. This gives a rare and exciting chance for the public to see archaeology in action. University of Manchester archaeologists have already begun removing turf on the site that overlooks the Y Valley. The same area houses King Arthur's Cave, a limestone cave that can be found beneath a cliff in Lordswood in the Doward Y Valley, Wales. Oh, wow. Those who wish to watch the dig are welcome to but need to book in advance. Arthur is thought to have fought off 5th century Saxon invaders wielding the magical sword of Excalibur. The impressive stones are also rumored to have inspired C.S. Lewis' novel The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, where Asia, or Aslan the Lion is sacrificed and breaks the stone table. King Arthur of House Pendragon was a legendary ruler of Camelot and a notable British leader. His castle at Tintagel has been visited by millions who flock to see where the man taught by Merlin the Wizard lived, despite being mostly remembered through folklore poems and fairy tales. Arthur has also been associated with the Holy Grail and the Knights of the Round Table, which have been reinterpreted and recreated numerous times. Yeah, I believe they that they uh, believe that the historical figure of Arthur was around the time that the that the Romans were leaving Britain and interesting stuff. I think so. All right, guys. Until the next time. All right, and in the meantime, I will see what I can find as far as interesting things to report on and I will see you soon. Take care.